Well, this morning we are continuing to go through the book of Acts, the story of the early church. I've been doing this for probably about, I don't know, six weeks or so, and we are up to Acts chapter 6, 7 around there today. Um, In the first few chapters, in case you missed it, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's told his disciples to wait until he sends the Holy Spirit. They wait in prayer. God puts the Holy Spirit in them, God's presence in them. As Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives his Holy Spirit, and the disciples go out from there to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, risen from the dead, and that all who put their faith in him will have eternal life. And some respond, a lot respond, in faith coming to faith in Jesus, but plenty others have a hard time with that and persecute the disciples, throwing them in jail. And they're they're faced with all kinds of challenges from persecution from the outside, corruption from the inside, challenges of leadership, of complaining, of grumbling, and all of this as the community grows. A lot's going on in the first few chapters. And in the last chapter, because of the growth of the church, they were faced with some leadership challenges. They raised up some men to come and make sure that the widows among them were not being overlooked. One of them was a man named Stephen, and his story is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to begin in verse 8 and read from verse 8 to 15 of chapter 6 to begin. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? So what's going on here is that Stephen, again, one of the early Christian leaders, is being accused of blasphemy, of speaking things against God, against Moses, against the temple, against the law. And even though they can't debate him and destroy him theologically with arguments, they decide instead we can't defeat him that way, so we are going to slander him. We're going to produce false witnesses. We're going to accuse him of all kinds of things. And these are the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, was made up of 70 religious leaders plus the high priest, and it was kind of like the Supreme Court in Jerusalem. And so Stephen, this early Christian, is brought before the Jewish Supreme Court, basically, who's going to decide, basically, whether he lives or dies. And they bring all the slander against him, and they ask him, you know, what say you, basically? Are these charges true? Stephen goes on to basically recount the history of Israel, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because that's not my focus this morning. But he goes through the story from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and he goes through the whole kind of story showing how God has worked through various people in various places. It's not just about this one temple, you know, but God has worked with many people for many times and places. He says in chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my home, my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? He's trying to tell them, I'm not speaking against God. I'm not speaking against the law. I'm not speaking against Moses or the temple. All of these things in the Old Testament have pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. 
Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one to whom all these things point. Stephen tries through his wisdom to show them that he's not at all anti-God. He's not at all opposed to the things that they believe, but that he is proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things, and they do not want to hear that. And so finally he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. It's another word for stubborn. You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. It's bold, right? So, I mean, these disciples, again, remember, these are the apostles who were running away in fear, hiding when Jesus was arrested. And now that they have the Holy Spirit, they have been transformed from cowards into courageous men and women. And they stand before these people who have the right to kill them by their religion. And they're not afraid. Stephen is not afraid to confront them with their sin and their ignorance. As you can imagine what would happen next. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Stephen tells them that everything that he's teaching is not contrary to God at all but that Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has happened in the Old Testament. And then he confronts them, saying, you are just like your fathers of old, resisting the prophets, resisting the people of God. They don't want to hear it, and they respond by dragging him out of the city and stoning him to death. And this individual named Saul, you might recognize him. He's eventually going to become known as Paul. But for now, he is one of the religious leaders. He is pro-persecution here giving approval to Stephen's death. But it says Stephen looks up to heaven and sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, standing at the place of authority, as if to give him a standing ovation. He's not sitting, he's standing, he is approving, giving his approval. Even though the Sanhedrin, they have disapproved of him and rejected him, he sees Jesus approving him and receiving him. Think of Romans 8, 33 to 34. Paul writes, "'Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns?' Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who's going to bring any charge? Even if they condemn, it says Christ stands at the right hand of the Father, giving approval. As F.F. Bruce wrote, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 to 33, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Stephen looks up and sees the Father. As he testifies to Jesus, he sees Jesus approving him, testifying about him. 
to the Father. So just like Jesus, Stephen is rejected by the court of human opinion, but he has received the approval of God. And just like Jesus, he dies praying for his executioners, asking for their forgiveness with grace in his heart, even as they are killing him. Stephen is commonly seen as the first martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R, the first one who dies for his faith in Jesus Christ, the first in a long line of many. And the fact is that faithfulness to Jesus in most times and in most cultures has always been likely to end up in opposition and persecution. It's very rare that you end up in a culture where people are applauding you for believing in Jesus and following him. Most places, you're going to experience persecution and opposition if you're truly walking in faithfulness to Jesus. I mean, if everyone loves you, you may need to look in the mirror because there's probably a good chance that you are not following Jesus as closely as you could. Because Jesus himself said this in John 15, 15, I'm sorry, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as one of its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus says, listen, if you're following me, you're very likely going to face some opposition and persecution along the way. If you don't, it's probably a sign you belong to the world because if they love you, then you're just probably swimming in the same streams as the culture, believing what they believe, teaching what they teach. You've probably kind of set aside anything, any of the rough edges of the faith, anything that might offend, because you want to fit in, because you want the culture to love you. Jesus is telling you, listen, this world is not a playground. It's not a picnic. This world is a battleground. Jesus came into this world to rescue people out of slavery to the enemy, to rescue people out of sin and death. This world is a battleground. And he's sending you out into this battleground to also bring people, to rescue people, to bring people to Jesus. You are going to face opposition and persecution. You're going to face resistance. It's not going to be easy. And this takes many, many different forms, doesn't it? There's many ways in which we can try to water down the message, many ways in which we can kind of smooth the edges of what Jesus taught so that we fit in with the culture. One of the most prominent ways is a teaching that's very popular maybe in Christian books and sermons and worship songs. Maybe you've heard ones that tell people that faith in God leads you to health and wealth and prosperity and favor and so on. Raise your hand if you've ever heard anything like that. Right? Your best life now, seven steps to living at your full potential. You need more money. There's a bold book title by Brian Houston, former pastor of Hillsong. Prosperity, the choice is yours by Kenneth Copeland. And you're supposed to be wealthy by Dr. Creflo Dollar. Just some examples of books that are out there unironically titled books trying to convince you that this is God's intent for your life. That if you follow him, the end result will be health and wealth, favor, blessing, everything going well for you. Can you imagine Stephen 
and the early Christians hearing a sermon like this or reading a book like this, they wouldn't recognize it, would they? They'd say, where did, where did people get this idea? What does this have anything to do with Christianity? What does this have anything to do with Jesus? Say, what part of our message, what part of Jesus' message has led you to think that the point of Christianity is to become healthy and wealthy? When you read Stephen's story, seeing him martyr for the faith, when you pay close attention to what it means to be a Christian in many countries around the world, it should make you sick how some Christian teachers have twisted the gospel, taken the American dream and baptized it and called it Christianity to make a name or a profit for themselves. Think about some of what's happening around the world. North Korea. Citizens are expected to venerate the Kim family, the ruling family. And Christians are seen as hostile to that. If you're found to be a Christian, you're either killed or put into a labor camp. Right now, an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently in prison in North Korea. And yet, somehow, there's still a massive underground church of 300 to 500,000 estimated that is still growing in secret. In Afghanistan, no faith except Islam is allowed to exist. And if a person converts to Christianity, they must flee the country or be killed, often by their own family, as an honor killing. Many other Islamic countries like Somalia and Libya, Yemen and Pakistan are also places where being a Christian means putting your life at risk. Some of you might remember in 2015, where 21 men in Egypt were martyred for their faith in ISIS, beheaded one by one. I read that one of those martyrs was not a Christian when he was captured, but when asked by his executioners if he rejected Christ, he was so moved by the faith of those that he was witnessing that he said, their God is my God, and accepted Christ there on the spot. Last week in Nigeria, some of you may know, 40 churchgoers were killed another, I think, 61 or 81 wounded by a group that entered their church with weapons and bombs, slaughtering men, women, and children for their faith. Again, this does not line up with that. They must not have had enough faith, Right? Those Nigerians in that church, they must not have had enough faith, or certainly they would have been healthy and wealthy instead of experiencing persecution, right? No, the truth is that we worship and follow Jesus, fully man, fully God, and his greatness is linked to his willingness to give his life sacrificially, to die, to save us. That's the God we follow, a God who sacrificially gave his life out of love, to save us. And he said this in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You want to follow me, he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is not consistent with living your best life now, finding wealth and health and all of that. 
It means being willing to lay everything down for the gospel, for Jesus. Laying down your rights. There's a lot of talk about rights these days. Following Jesus means I am willing to lay down every one of those rights. To lay down your dreams, to be willing to give up your dreams, to commit your life to following him, the one who gave up his life for you, who laid down everything for you. That's what Stephen did. That's what so many in the early church did. I mean, don't forget, this is just the beginning. In the first couple centuries, again, the Christians were not beloved people in the Roman Empire. They were seen as enemies of the state for their insistence that Jesus was the only God to be worshipped, not the Caesars, not all the Roman gods, that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. They were seen as enemies of the state. They were used as sport in the Colosseum, thrown to the lions. Emperor Nero used Christians as torches to light his estate. In the second century, Tertullian, one of the early church leaders, said, we are not a new philosophy but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Maybe you've heard that line before. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Romans wanted the Christians to be good citizens to follow their gods, to worship their gods. And they thought, well, we'll just make an example out of the Christians. We'll throw them to the lions, we'll burn them, and that'll dissuade people from wanting to become Christians. And guess what? The opposite happened. As people saw the faith, the integrity of the Christians, their worship of Jesus, their willingness to care for the poor, to love sacrificially, and they contrasted it with the Roman Empire and the decadence of the empire, more and more people turned to faith in Jesus. St. Ignatius of Antioch, another early Christian, he said this as he was approaching the Colosseum for his own death. He said, Now I begin to be a disciple of Christ. I care for nothing, a visible or invisible thing, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Jesus Christ. I mean, you, again, you, you read these, you look at the faith of people around the world risking their lives in underground churches because of their faith in Jesus, and you compare it to us sitting here in air-conditioned comfort, sometimes complaining about persecution in America, and we just have no idea, do we? We're just not seeing things clearly. To follow Jesus means being willing to lay down everything, to give up everything. Are you willing to follow that kind of God? Not the God who promises you that everything's going to go great in your life and it's going to be health and wealth and prosperity, but the God who promises you that in this world you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Are you willing to follow that one? The Jesus who laid down his life and says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You might never be beheaded for your faith. You might never be put in prison, although one day it may come to that, even in America. But again, you're still faced with the choice daily to live for yourself, for your own pleasures, for your own desires, to follow your own wants, or to be willing to lay down your life sacrificially for others, to take up your cross and follow Jesus, to give up your rights, your possessions, your time, 
for the good of others, to stand for the truth even if you're standing alone, to be willing to be rejected by the court of popular opinion because you do not go along with the culture. Again, I said something similar to this last week, but you look at the world and you think, well, the church should be more like the, the companies and organizations of this culture. If we want to grow, you know, we should use the marketing tools of the culture and follow the way they do it, and that's how we're going to grow. And again, that's never been the way God does it. The more you try to look like the culture, the more you try to follow the world, the more the church atrophies and shrinks. It's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. He says it's as we give ourselves sacrificially to God and to others that the church grows in every way. That's the way it works. So again, as Jesus said in John 15, 12 to 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That is what he's calling you to. Stephen is just the first in a long line of many willing to lay down their lives and give all the way to death if necessary out of love for others. Even as he's being stoned saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And Jesus promises this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can't give up or lay down or sacrifice this side of heaven that you won't have more than you could ever imagine forever. Do you believe that? You know, if you never get to go on vacation to those places you really want to go, it's okay, you know. I believe in the new heavens and new earth. Hawaii is going to, you know, it's going to look like nothing. It's going to look like your backyard. It's going to, it's, it's nothing. If you never make that million dollars or even that thousand dollars or whatever, it's okay. You're going to be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams with true wealth when you're with him forever. If you never get that job you wanted, even if you're never married, even if, if you never have kids, if, whatever it is, whatever you have to lay down and give up this side of eternity, it's not going to compare to what he has for you. The calling is to take up your cross and follow him. Look once more at the end of the passage we read. It says, Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. I find that amazing because you might remember at the beginning of Acts what happened. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? That was the marching orders. Go everywhere and preach the gospel. And up until this point, what had happened? They had created this amazing church in Jerusalem. And it was a great church, but you didn't see anyone going beyond the you know, borders of Jerusalem. And it's almost maybe as if God used this for his glory. Again, Satan comes to destroy the church in Jerusalem. And what happens? Instead, the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, exactly where Christ had told them to go. Satan intends it for evil to kill the church, and instead it leads to the spread of the gospel. I thought of that, you know, even as we went through COVID times where it was like, you know, COVID comes and forces us to, like, not have to meet, and we have to figure out this whole, like, live streaming thing, you know? It's as if God pushed us out to say, there's people out there who might not come into your doors. Get out there. Find a way to reach out beyond your walls. 
There's nothing that Satan can't try to do to come against you that God will not turn and use for good. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time to pray for the persecuted church together. We probably don't do this as often as we should. You know, we're very inward focused so often, not thinking about the church worldwide, not aware of what is going on around the world. But just to share a couple passages with you, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26. Paul says, but, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. There's one church universal, and if one part of the church is suffering, then we all suffer along with them. In Hebrews 13, 3, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. If you don't know where to begin in, in finding out more about the persecuted church, some places you can look. The Voice of the Martyrs is one place. Open Doors USA is another place. There's a, a movie and book called The Insanity of God by Nick Rip, Ripkin recently as well. These are some good places to begin if you want a little more education about what is going on around the world in places where they don't all sit in air-conditioned comfort worshiping God. But why don't we just join together in some prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution. You're welcome to pray out loud, um, or if you're not sure how to pray, you can pray silently or just listen to those who pray. But let's, let's spend some time in prayer together.
Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who so recently had their church invaded and so many of their members killed, Lord. Somehow, Lord, strengthen them to be a witness to you in the face of such injustice and terrible suffering, Lord, to be a witness to you in their love and their grace. Bring justice, Lord. Bring comfort, bring healing. And Lord, we confess our self-centeredness to you this morning. How easily we complain. When we have no right to, Lord. We are grateful this morning for your love for us, for your grace over us. For the freedoms we have, Lord. But we do need courage, Lord. In increasing measure, it feels like we need courage in our culture, Lord, to be true to you and faithful to you, not be afraid to love sacrificially and to follow you as you lead, Lord. To speak the truth in love when it's hard, to be willing to be opposed and ostracized and rejected, Lord. Just help us to walk in faithfulness to you, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing persecution, real persecution, Lord, who are in danger of their lives because of their faith. We pray, God, that you would strengthen them, that you would protect them, that you would continue, Lord, to grow your church by the power of the Holy Spirit. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.